This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWIA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. I am Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and as always with me is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello again, Alan. Hey, Darren. On today's episode, we have a singular focus. The terrorist attacks in Sri Lanka have been the dominant story since we last recorded and so we thought we'd discuss them and some of the issues facing Australian foreign policy in the terrorism and counterterrorism domain. So let's get straight into it. As I'm sure all of our listeners know, on Sunday, the 21st of April, Easter Sunday, suicide bombers killed over 250 people in multiple coordinated attacks at churches and hotels across Sri Lanka. At least 38 foreigners died, including two Australians, a woman and her 10-year-old daughter. This is one of the highest death tolls for a terrorist attack by Islamic extremists. A previously little-known local militant Islamist group called National Tawhid Jamath, NTJ, is accused of carrying out the attacks, and we are yet to know the full extent of foreign involvement. The alleged ringleader of the attacks, who blew himself up in a hotel in Colombo, may have actually led a splinter group of NTJ. But equally, it seems unlikely whether it was the splinter group or NTJ that such a small organisation could have coordinated such a sophisticated set of attacks without outside help. Islamic State subsequently released a statement claiming responsibility. Then, earlier this week, quite sensationally, the leader of Islamic State, Abu Bakir, Uh, Bakir al-Baghdadi, appeared in a video and audio recording for the first time in five years in which he praised the attacks and said that they were revenge for IS's recent defeat in its final stronghold of Baghuz in Syria. Meanwhile, the Sri Lankan government admitted major intelligence lapses after it came out that officials had received warnings weeks prior about the likelihood of attacks but that the information had not been properly shared around government and obviously no action was taken. Alan, what is your reaction to the fact that this occurred in Sri Lanka? I mean, to step back, how does the small island nation typically get understood through the lens of Australian foreign policy? Well, in fact, Colombo has been part of Australia's international imagination for for a long time, really, from European uh, uh, settlement here, because it was one of Britain's own string of pearls linking Australia and New Zealand back to the heart of empire through Singapore and Mumbai and Aden and, and Suez. It was also one of our earliest diplomatic posts. We set up a uh, High Commission there in 1947 when Ceylon, as it then was, became independent. And we know it, of course, as the site of one of the earliest major Australian diplomatic initiatives, the Colombo Plan, which lives on nowadays as the uh, new Colombo Plan. But look, for for the duration of the long civil war between the Sinhalese Buddhist uh, majority and the uh, Tamil 
Hindu minority. And it's important to realise what a trauma that was. About 70,000 people died in it. And during that period, we thought about Sri Lanka basically in uh, security and humanitarian terms. When the uh, Tamil resistance was finally defeated in May 2009, around 200,000 people were displaced from their homes. And you might remember that the Rudd government was suddenly faced with a huge surge uh, in asylum seekers from uh, Sri Lanka trying to reach Australia. And these people brought security concerns as well because the Tamil resistance included the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, LTTE, which was a terrorist group which actually pioneered the modern use of suicide bombings. So during all those years, we, we really didn't give much thought to the other two smaller minorities in Sri Lanka, the uh, Tamil Muslims, about 10% of the population, and the smaller though very old, uh, Christian community. So when I first heard about this bombing, I had to sort of work to get my mind around the fact that this was a Muslim attack on Christians. Um, The terrible uh, impact of the bombings was made even harder to understand and even uh, to bear, I think, uh, by the fact that, as you noticed, uh, noted, the authorities had received apparently good intelligence from the Indian security agencies, but that internal political divisions between the president and the prime minister uh, seemed to have contributed to this horrifying lapse. It's unclear whether or not the bombers knew it before they planned these events, but Sri Lanka turned out to be a very soft target. You were in Colombo yourself recently, Darren. Did it seem to you when you were there like a place ripe for a huge terrorist attack like this? No, no, absolutely not, Alan. It felt, it was my first trip to Sri Lanka and it felt like a very peaceful and even sleepy city. I was there to talk about Indian Ocean security uh, and geoeconomics. And I came away with a sense that the Sri Lankans are still very much finding their way in international affairs. It was emphasised to me several times by Sri Lankans themselves that they are a very small country with a long history of being overshadowed uh, by larger powers uh, and that they maybe don't have as much agency over there themselves as they would like. And as you mentioned, Alan, it's also a country undergoing really long-term, slow-boil political turmoil, including last year there was this significant constitutional crisis where the president tried to sack the prime minister and this was stopped by the courts. And this political flux is influencing their capacity to navigate between China and India and develop a coherent policy on how to deal with the two of those major powers. And now, of course, it's also hampering, as we know, their ability to handle internal security. So to me, and you know, we'll talk more about this as the podcast unfolds, it is a reminder of how easy it is for us in Australia to take our government for granted. Yes, many Australians don't think very highly of politicians, especially during this election season. But we, government is more than that, right? It's, it's law enforcement, it's the courts, it's bureaucracy. And in Australia, these have helped create in this context, a very well-functioning and advanced counter-terrorism capability. And more broadly, you know, makes society work, makes the country fairly well-functioning. Of course, it's not perfect, and there will be failures and events that cannot be stopped, as we have seen with attacks in Australia over the past few years. And we should always hold decision-makers to account. But for me, I think on on a personal level, these recent attacks 
illustrated how effective our country is compared to much of the world and that we remain very much a lucky country. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's that's quite right. Yeah. So anyway, let's zoom out to the international level now. How should we understand these attacks through the lens of the broader challenge posed by Islamic extremism and the shifting status of IS itself from you know, holding territory and essentially running a state for a few years to its defeat on the ground such that it's now becoming a sort of more classical underground terrorist organisation that is seeking to inspire attacks around the world. Like, How do we, how does the Sri Lanka attack sort of fit into that story? Well, at, at an even broader level, um, Darren, I mean, in, in recent weeks, we've seen attacks on Christians in Colombo, on Muslims in Christchurch, on uh, Jews at a synagogue in uh, San Diego. So there have been frequent reminders of the persistence of terrorism as a threat and the different forms that it takes. Now, look, on, on this particular IS attack, I do think we always need to remind ourselves of the catastrophic consequences of the Bush administration's decision to respond to the 9-11 attacks by invading Iraq and how they these still ripple outwards. IS seems to have managed, for the time being anyway, to have turned what might have been seen as a fatal setback as it was driven out of the huge swathe of territory it held in Iraq and Syria. It seems to have transformed this into an opportunity to spread its activities into other parts of the world. So we've seen IS cells, or at least IS identifying uh, cells in the Philippines, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, and even in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's also disturbing and clear that it's managed to attract IS, that is, it's managed to attract quite wealthy and well-educated adherents, and horrifyingly to have brought whole families into the terrorist network. So we've, we've seen the wives of terrorist suspects blow themselves up in Indonesia, Bangladesh, and uh, and just more recently in uh, Sri Lanka. I read a piece from Lydia uh, Khalil of the Lowy Institute over the past week, uh, and the quote that jumped out at me was, Islamic State does not need to hold territory in order to remain a lethal global threat. So mm. the question is the policy response. You know, What types of policy responses are available to Australia and the international community? Alan, in our last episode in which we were discussing geoeconomics, you mentioned that following 9-11 there had been an integration of security agencies in Australia. I think you used the phrase spooks, analysts and coppers. Can you explain a bit more about you know, how, as a result of this integration, foreign policy as it relates to issues raised in a terrorist attack like this is actually formulated? You have to begin at home. Any government needs to begin at home with the domestic security and intelligence organisations, especially ASIO and the AFP. You need to know whether there is a threat to uh, Australians here. But you can't respond to any international problem without also engaging internationally. Uh, we saw that in, in uh, Sri Lanka. The, the authorities had warning from India, although they failed to take note of it. And certainly since the time of the Bali bombings, when we really began to, fo to focus on it, a major Australian objective has been to work as closely as we can with the security and intelligence agencies of our neighbours and also those further afield 
in the Middle East and with our traditional partners to deepen knowledge and understanding of the threat. We work very hard to build this network of information which enables us to identify the threat and where it's coming from. And we've also tried to help, and I think pretty successfully, to build capabilities in our region, especially in Indonesia. You've seen there the um, Jakarta Centre for Law Enforcement Cooperation, which has been doing very good work for a long time now, began with the AFP, and and we saw it in the assistance we, we provided to the Philippines over the Marawi siege. At a level above that, at the broader international diplomacy, you've got to work to strengthen international instruments addressing terrorism and to make sure that the international community can impose sanctions on terrorist groups and their state supporters. You initially called Sri Lanka a soft target, Alan. If it's true that we are entering a new phase of IS activity or a renewed phase of IS activity in which they are specifically targeting vulnerable locations, should the Australian government be seeking to identify other soft targets around the world where Australians might be spending time? Like That seems like a, a very daunting prospect. Well, it is a daunting prospect, but it's already what DFAT is doing in association with the uh, intelligence and security agencies when it frames its travel advisories. It's a very serious um, process and the government puts a lot of effort into it. Actually, that's a, it's a very good point. In my younger years, I didn't pay too much attention to travel advisories, but in recent years, especially because the ANU requires you to sign up for the Smart Traveller website when you are going overseas, I've had occasion to, to pay more attention. And, it, and it's remarkable how detailed some of them are. I mean, we're talking maps of individual cities where particular blocks and streets are delineated as being, you should not go you know, beyond this particular street or block, um, which is very impressive and must take an amazing amount of work, especially to keep it updated constantly um, with these kinds of threats. So a good reminder for our listeners, you know, pay attention to the Smart Traveller website. I have a question now, I'm not sure to the extent that you know much about this, but what the Indians were doing or did you know, for the Sri Lankans and giving them a heads up of you know the results of their own, and by that I mean the Indians' intelligence gathering efforts, do we do that kind of thing as well where we might give subtle warnings, um, you know, or quiet warnings to our partners saying we are worried that there might be an attack on, on your soil? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I know that. Um, and yes, we do. And there, there might be ways in which you have to frame the warnings to, yes, this is sort of part of the give and take of, uh, of international cooperation on terrorism. Well, we know at least one of the Sri Lankan terrorists had completed postgraduate studies in Australia. And this, of course, came on the heel, comes on the heels of the equally horrific terrorist attack by an Australian citizen in Christchurch back in March, in which 50 Muslims were killed during Friday prayers. In another attack in 2016 in Bangladesh, in which 22 people died at the Holy Artisan Cafe, one of the perpetrators had also studied in Australia. These connections are always highlighted by media coverage in the aftermath of attacks like these. And I guess I'm wondering why this is. Well, I think one, one of the reasons is blindingly obvious. I mean, journalists, of course, always look for local connections to make their stories uh, resonate. That's not a criticism. They're doing, they're absolutely doing their job in that. Of course, of course. Are there any policy implications, though? I mean, does this 
do these connections create a particular challenge for our diplomats serving around the world or for policymakers in Australia? Again, the people most immediately interested are um, ASIO and the AFP. They have a particular immediate interest in looking at whether the radicalisation uh, was caused or, or driven by people in Australia or whether mm. operational mm. threats here. Um, I, it's not clear, well, it's not clear publicly, it may be within the agencies, whether the Australian experience was central or peripheral to the Sri Lankan bomber. More broadly, we know the statistics. One in every four Australians was born overseas. Half of us have at least one parent who was born overseas. And the consequences of that for our multicultural societies, that there are always going to be deep connections between Australia and other parts of the world. Now, overwhelmingly, that's a good thing, but it also means that whenever something goes wrong in the world, whether it's the, you know, the Balkans in the, uh, in the 1980s and 90s or the Middle East or the Uyghurs or the Tamils or Somalia, there will be an Australian mm. uh, connection and that's going to have consequences for our diplomats and consular officials as well as the security agencies. Mm. I guess that's a great point. Now, I guess think, to continue the theme of the Australian connection, I think maybe one of the trickiest policy dilemmas you know, these create um, is most vividly illustrated uh, by the problem of foreign fighters. And so let me try to set the scene here. Uh, in the early stages of the rise of Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, a significant number of Australians went across to join IS. You know, these are Australian citizens who decided that they shared IS's goals and they wanted to fight. The most notorious of these was, of course, Khaled Sharouf, uh, who listeners may remember was very much in the news back in 2014. He had a previous terror conviction from the 2000s, but was able to leave Australia on his brother's passport with his family and shot to prominence after an image of his young son holding the severed head of a soldier circulated around the internet. Now, the government passed legislation in 2014 to address the problem of foreign fighters, uh, which, amongst other things, barred departed fighters from returning. It could strip dual nationals of citizenship, um, give them life in prison if they did return, and also allowed the foreign minister to designate declared no-go areas around the world, which meant if you went there and you couldn't explain why you were there, you'd be breaking the law. So the Australian government now has... I guess, broad powers to prevent would-be fighters from leaving, but also from stopping them returning. And this is where the policy dilemma comes in, and I think why the Sri Lankan example is a useful entry point into this issue. Because you have the conflict in Syria winding down, Islamic State has lost its territory, and now you have these Western citizens, foreigners, I guess, from, from all across the world, including Australians who have nowhere to go. And you know, many of them are, are detained, they're in refugee camps, they're in prison. And the question is, what should the Australian government do with them? If you bring them home, of course, in the worst case scenario, you have these battle-hardened extremists on home soil who could carry out attacks at home. But if you, you, know, if you have them at home, you also have the ability to keep a close eye on them hopefully to work to de-radicalise them and reintegrate them into society. You know, we have the capabilities, as we discussed earlier, to do, to do that, at least to monitor and keep Australia safe. And if you stop them from coming home, though, they become someone else's problem. But they don't go away. 
And if assuming that they are free, well, they have the capacity to commit terrorist attacks in other countries around the world, including against Australians who are travelling in those countries. And I think the relevant example here is Neil Prakash, uh, who was born in Melbourne to a Fijian father and a Cambodian mother and went to join IS and won infamy for his participation in propaganda videos that urged Muslims in the West to fight, including in Australia. And he was described by the former Attorney General, George Brandis, as, quote, the principal Australian reaching back from the Middle East into Australia, end quote. He was arrested in 2016 when trying to cross from Syria into Turkey, and he's currently in prison in Turkey. In late December last year, the Australian government stripped Prakash of his citizenship on the basis of his affiliation with IS, and he became the 12th dual citizen to have his citizenship cancelled. And I note that the government had previously failed to have him extradited from Turkey back to Australia. So why are we talking about this? Why is this relevant? Well, following the citizenship cancellation, the Fijian government claimed that they had no record of Prakash and that he was not a Fijian citizen. So he's never set foot in Fiji and the Fijians don't want him, unsurprisingly. But this is where the Sri Lanka example comes in because let's say that the Fijian government had been willing to accept him And so we now then would consider a scenario where an experienced IS fighter with a grudge against Australia travels to a country whose counter-terrorism capabilities are less than Sri Lanka's, less than Australia's. But like Sri Lanka, and and this by Mitchell meaning Fiji, hosts thousands of Australian tourists every year. So you have a real dilemma here. If these former IS fighters going to countries that are otherwise hosting many Australians on holiday. But those countries don't have the capabilities that we have here to address them as we saw in Sri Lanka. Alan, you know, I'm trying to sort of understand this. What do you make of this situation? Well, I, I strongly agree with you on this. I, I think that as a developed country with effective institutions, Australia has an ethical responsibility for our own citizens and even for our dual citizens. Um, It's important to remember, too, how relatively recent the idea of dual citizenship is in Australia. Mm. But I I think we have a responsibility for them rather than sending them back to places where they may be monitored less effectively. And whereas you point out, they can still do uh, damage to Australians. And interesting illustration of this was the fact that the Saudis stripped Osama bin Laden of his citizenship, but that simply fanned the al-Qaeda threat. It's incredibly resource-intensive to monitor people and to try to de-radicalise them, if indeed that's possible. So it's easy to understand the temptation to just export our problems, but we should take responsibility ourselves because Australia overall will be better off for it. This is not the same thing, but I but I also must say that I sympathise with the Kiwis who complain that our government is sending back across the Tasman New Zealanders who've um, who've broken the law but have uh, lived here most of their lives. This is another place I think where we have a national responsibility. Mm, yeah, I think that's what's missing from the debate. You know, I think it's very easy to look at it from the singular singular dimension of the threat they would pose if they were to return to Australian soil and how expensive it would be to try to control them, to monitor them and de-radicalise them. And what's been missing, at least what I have not seen enough of, um, particularly from, from our political leaders, are both the ethical dimensions to this, but also the simple fact that 
Australian security may be in some ways equally threatened by having them, you know, located overseas where Australians are travelling. And, and, and I think that's a dimension that, that needs to have more attention paid to it. Anyway, yeah. let, so my final mm-hmm. question uh, for today, Alan, and this is sort of to bring this into election season a little bit, I wanted to refer you to an interview that you gave to Andrew Clark to the Australian Financial Review uh, in mid-April. And I'm going to quote Clark himself, um, sort of responding to what you had said to him. In other words, there is a sort of passive conspiracy between the two major parties to keep an election campaign lid on mounting alarm among members of Australia's foreign policy establishment about what is happening in the big bad world. Alan, can you explain the perspective that you offer that caused Clark to write that? And then second, I think, can you comment on how this might not be entirely true in the domain of border security and terrorism? You know, Prime Minister Morrison has attacked Labor for foot dragging regarding some of the government's national security legislation, a charge angrily denied by opposition leader Bill Shorten. Yeah, well, look, it's certainly true, as Andrew Clark said, and as you and I discuss often enough here, (laughs) that the international issues facing Australia at this time are hugely important. Uh, I think both sides of Australian politics accept that. You can see that in the, you know, foreign policy uh, white paper of the government in the sort of speeches that uh, Bill Shorten and Penny Wong have been delivering. Um, And it's not that there aren't differences between the parties on these issues. It's that the, the differences that there are are subtle and the sort of thing that interests you and me and the listeners to this podcast, but hardly cut through as what John Howard would have called a barbecue stopper uh, for the uh, for the public. So during an election campaign, what the parties are trying to do is to highlight the differences between themselves and their opponents where they think that will be an advantage and to minimise the differences where they think vulnerabilities uh, might uh, might be for, uh, where, where they might see vulnerabilities for them for themselves um, security threats and particularly terrorist attacks among are among the very few areas of international policy that cause ordinary Australian voters to take notice for a short period of time so Scott Morrison was trying to reinforce a perceived coalition strength uh, toughness on borders And on the other side, Penny Wong delivered what might turn out to be the only major speech, I suspect, on foreign policy during the election campaign at the Lowy Institute on the 1st of May. But she highlighted differences from the government in areas like climate change and racial discrimination, where the ALP thinks that its uh, strengths lie. Now, look, in, in some ways, I would love a big national debate on these issues, but seeing what happens to subtle and informed discussion in other areas of public policy during an election campaign, uh, maybe we're better off without it. (laughs) Okay. Well, on that cheerful note, uh, let's turn to our final segment of the podcast, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what have you been reading, listening or watching? Uh, As you know, I'm a non-techie and I need help in these areas. So I've been reading uh, an excellent new report from the uh, US Study Centre at the University of Sydney by Hilary McGeechee, who's a DFAT officer who was seconded there as an Alliance 21 fellow. And she's written a report with the, it has to be said, 
somewhat less than snappy title, US-China technology competition impacting a rules-based order, but ignore the title, uh, Hillary manages the really extraordinary feat of, manage, of making the International Organization for Standardization interesting. Uh, <laughs> and so I thoroughly recommend that. And on the US response to all those uh, issues as well, they're really good New Yorker uh, correspondent on science and politics, uh, Sue Halpin, has written a, a terrific piece called The Terrifying Potential of the 5G Network, which chronicles some of the dangers ahead. Okay, well, I also have two recommendations. The first is one I just cannot resist. We it's, Today is the 2nd of, of May, and this past week we had the third episode uh, of the Game of Thrones final season. And without... Now you've got to be careful, Darren. I don't, as you know, I don't have access to being a non, non-techie to, uh, to Foxtel, so I want no spoilers and on... Uh, on Game of Thrones. Absolutely, absolutely no spoilers. But Alan, if you can wait until they are released on, on DVD without hearing a spoiler, you will have done very well. Um, <laughs> but all I will say is that episode three uh, was controversial, at least on, on Twitter. I guess which shows what a miserable place Twitter can be. Uh, and I have very strong positive feelings about the episode and that the, a review by David French uh, at the National Review Online, um, really captured my sentiments. And so I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, and the second, uh, on a completely different uh, track uh, and a bit more serious, is a piece in the New York Times uh, Upshot section. And the title is, Women Did Everything Right, Then Work Got Greedy. And that's from April the 26th. And I'll put that in the show notes too. And it explores the idea that the, the continuing uh, pay gap, gender pay gap between men and women um, is not potentially due to sort of some inherent sexism but because the returns to working long and inflexible hours in certain professions like in law and finance have greatly increased. It's a very interesting uh, and sophisticated idea that I think poses a, a whole new set of policy challenges. So uh, the upshot, women did everything right then work got greedy. I will link to it. That is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank our AAA intern, Charlie Henshaw, for his help with research and audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you. That's all. And talk to you again soon.